0: You're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger
1: Bodwin. Welcome back to the show guys. I am super excited to bring you an amazing restaurateur from Los Angeles. His name is Mr. Joshua Coppel. Actually, he's not from Los Angeles at all. He's from Baton Rouge. And Joshua's original idea was to go to L.A. 20 years ago to find a unique concept that he could bring back to the South. What ended up happening? He stayed in L.A. and brought Creole cuisine to that fine restaurant city. He now runs three concepts, including the Michelin-rated Prue and Proper. What's in a name? I've always believed in the name of your restaurant is such powerful marketing. Well, pru, P-R-E-U-X, is a French word that means brave, gallant, valiant, and courageous. And proper, of course, means conforming to established standards. So what a unique name. So anyway, Joshua and I got together and we started talking restaurants. And there are so many key learnings in this episode. He'll tell all about how he almost lost Pru and Proper before he then built it back up and then ultimately earned his Michelin. And star rating. We're going to talk about costs. We're going to talk about menu design and development. We're going to talk about running a tight ship, how to motivate and train staff. We're going to cover all the bases. So stay tuned. You're not going to want to miss this episode. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, and these are engaging topics that help restaurants build their brands, rock their profits, and deliver amazing guest service experiences. I am so stoked today. My guest is Mr. Joshua kopal and he's running three concepts in Los Angeles. Recognized concepts, but what a story he has. An amazing story all about true success in the restaurant and hospitality space. Welcome to the show, Joshua, and thanks for being here.
0: I'm so excited to be here. Thank you.
1: This is so much fun for me because I love talking shop with independent operators. We actually have something called the Independent Operator Series in the podcast, and you're an excellent addition to that. So here we go. My audience knows that we usually start out with a backstory of my guest, and yours is particularly fascinating. Now, I know that you're a Baton Rouge, Louisiana boy, born and raised, and you went to Los Angeles to find an idea for a Southern concept that you would bring back, or no, an idea that you would bring back to the South.
0: Oh, a fancy Los Angeles concept.
1: Oh, dazzling. I wanted
0: to bring back something super cool from Los Angeles, like like a shoe store that turns into a nightclub, you know?
1: I still hear the accent in your voice, even though you spent, you know, two decades in Los Angeles. So what ended up happening is you stayed in L.A. and now you're bringing Southern cuisine, right? Creole cuisine to L.A. and, and you're just, you know, making a huge story out of that. And that's really amazing. Now, your flagship restaurant is called Prue and Proper. And it's Michelin-recognized, which is amazing. But I want to hear all about the backstory. Tell us, way back when, how you got interested in restaurants or cooking, or where did the passion come from?
0: Well, I, I'm from southern Louisiana. And so, you know, the hospitality industry is is, is central to the economy there. And, uh, <laughs> and so there aren't a lot of places that you can work illegally when you're like 13, 14, 15 years old. But you can in a restaurant. So, you know, I I started by working in, you know, dirty bars, sweeping floors, cleaning toilets, and all of that. Um, And I just worked off tips, you know, and then slowly but surely worked my way up through the ranks to where I am today. But it started uh, on the outskirts of Baton Rouge in Prairieville, Louisiana, at uh, the Alligator Bayou Bar, which is located on Alligator Bayou Road, which is located on Alligator Bayou.
1: So that vision of the alligator bayou I'm getting in my mind is like just that, right? There's a, there's a bayou down a country road, and if you fall in the water, you could get eaten by an alligator. right So this is
0: how we this is how we used to tell people how to get there. Before the internet. Yeah. we used to okay. say, you're gonna take a right off the freeway. When the pavement becomes gravel, keep going. When the gravel becomes dirt, look to your left and you'll see it. And you would see this. It was a cabin. Yeah, it, it was a cabin. That it, I think it was like 50 years old, 60 years old at the time that had been refashioned into a bar. Uh, there was a group of folks dancing in there one night and the floor caved in in the middle. And the owners went to me and they said, you need to get that fixed. So I came back to them with the price. I said, how much is it? And I said, it'll be about twenty five hundred to three thousand dollars to fix it. And uh, and they said, "Well, uh, how much is a pool table?" And I said, "Pool table is fifteen hundred dollars." And they were like, "Duct tape over the hole and put a pool
1: table there." Smart idea, right? New profit center. Don't fix the <laughs> hole. Figure out a way to make money over the hole.
0: Brilliant, man! It was a pleasure to learn from them.
1: I love it. That's fantastic. So I got you know I, again. I got all these impressions like moonshining and all that stills in the backwoods and all that kind of stuff. Was that really the ambiance of this place?
0: Yeah, I mean, less moonshine, more Jack Daniels. But yeah. I mean, it was it was everything you would think it was. It was live music every night. Um, Baton Rouge has blue laws. Hmm. So this place was particularly popular on uh, Sundays because it was the only, it was the, the first place you could drink on your way from Baton Rouge to New Orleans. So everybody would come out on Sunday nights. We had a big patio in the back that overlooked the bayou. It was a uh, it, it was very it was very how you would envision it was very stereotypical, but it was it was as magical as you could imagine.
1: That's awesome. That is so great. How far is it from Baton Rouge to uh to New Orleans?
0: About 45 minutes.
1: Okay, that's not too far. I was there I think about a year ago. I was doing a speaking gig down um down in well, New Orleans, I had never been there before, but it was like Mardi Gras any day of the week. I think I was there like on a Monday or a Tuesday night and the place, the you know, the French quarter was still like crazy with people like spilling out of places and everyone like having that party thing. And there were so many restaurants to choose from. It's like, how do you possibly. So, yeah, oh, it's for all sure. About- hospitality and lifestyle and all that sort of thing and and that's those are your roots right
0: well they are and that was also my breeding ground i mean that's where i learned about next level hospitality that's that that's when i realized that you know you're not serving food you're serving the patron you know and every experience is an individualized experience um and that's also where i learned that you know for me personally i have a servant's heart and i love to serve people and i love to participate And and their experiences, you know, you can look at it as, you know, this is a gig where you get paid a small hourly, plus you get, you know, cash in your pocket every night, or you can look at it as an opportunity to really participate in people's special moments, their first dates, their anniversaries, their promotions. Um, You know, there are so many magical moments that happen in people's lives that they choose to share around a dinner table. Um, And you are, if you do your job right, uh, a meaningful member of that without overly influencing the, uh, the experience.
1: I get the sense that you're still very much a part of the front of house in your establishments. and your. I and actively and,
0: operate all of my locations.
1: You do. So how do you, I mean, do you spend certain days at certain locations? Do you mix it up? They never know when you're going to show up. How does that work?
0: <laughs> so, uh, so it's a process. So I start out in the morning. I go to the, the bar. So if you, if you could see the way LA is set up geographically, I live in the valley. So I pass through Hollywood on my way to downtown. So I pass through Hollywood. I stop by the bar. I see how they close the night before. And then I roll into the fine dining restaurant, do a little paperwork before the, uh, the fried chicken joint down the street opens, go to the fried chicken joint for opening, make sure everything is smooth. Then I head back to the fine dining restaurant, uh, do the administrative work, whatever I have to do for the rest of the day. And then we open for dinner service. By the time the restaurant's winding down around 9 or 10 o'clock at night. I go back to the bar, and I
1: check in one more time
0: before I go home.
1: So you got long days, huh?
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, isn't that the nature of the beast?
1: It is for sure.
0: Well, I can remember somebody was telling me uh, the other day. They were like, man, I'm just exhausted. You know, Normally, I do about 40 hours a week, but I've been doing 50 hours a week the last two weeks, and I'm exhausted. I told them, I said, man, I remember my first part-time job. That was, that was rough.
1: Well this begs the question, I mean, do you have an exit strategy in mind? Whatever that I means do. to you? I mean, we
0: we're, we're we're building this thing out to be uh a you know, a, a family of brands that then when you look at like, you know, the bar concept is is easily replicatable and, and would be a beautiful addition to like any airport in the country. Um we uh we we have a deal that that's still under wraps, but it is a uh, it is an opportunity to get South City and uh, every major city with a uh, with, with very little friction. Um, so it's everything is part of a larger plan.
1: That's fantastic. I also like
0: it. I well, like to
1: work. Well, you gotta love it, but. How, what about your management teams? I mean, how, wh- well, describe your management style and tell me how much uh, delegation you have. And if you empower your staff and what your feeling is on all of that and how you, a understand. ton
0: of delegation, right? A ton. Mm-hmm. All I do every day is what I would only I can do. That's it. If someone else could possibly do the task that I'm doing, I delegate it out. um, a, the management structure at, uh, you know, at it, South City, because it's a smaller, fast, casual location, we have a series of key holders with a variety of responsibilities um, at the bar. We do have a general manager there. Um, but again, we, we, with a bar, it, it's I don't do the babysitting. What I do is the orchestrating. Right. It's it's important to, to be the visionary and propel these things forward. Uh, I, you know, every day I ask myself, how can we make it better? How can we inspire people to come back? Um, what can we do that is fun and exciting? Uh, every penny that we invest in the place, we invest in patron experience. Um, and with Prue and Proper, it's about keeping it fresh. You know, the Michelin nod was fantastic. Um, as exciting as it was humbling, you know, when it happened, I turned to the executive chef, who's my business partner. And I said, you know, this happens to other people. This doesn't happen to us. You know,
1: well, I got to ask you, how does that happen? How do you get recognized? Well, you're in a high profile city, first of all. So I'm sure they have like talent scouts on the lookout for the hot new place and the recognition that you receive accolades, that sort of thing. Uh, online reviews probably play into it, but there's probably so much more. Like, how do you get a Michelin recognition and Michelin Guide? I have
0: no idea. Here's what I can tell you. I can tell you that they hit me up via email about three months before released. And they said, you're being considered for inclusion in the 2019 California Michelin guide. We need all of this information. So I, uh, I reached out to my publicist, my publicist put the packet together. It was a ton of stuff. And, uh, and then we sent it off and they sent us an email back saying received. And then we didn't hear anything. And, you know, it's so funny the way the mind works because, you know, the Michelin, Michelin wasn't in California or wasn't in Los Angeles for years and years. So we didn't open the restaurant thinking, "Ooh, we hope we get this. It wasn't even a possibility. So when they reached out, I was like, you know, if we get it, we get it. If we don't, we don't. Who cares? And then like a month passes and I was like, well, you know, it would, it would be nice if we got it. That would be that would be really nice. And by the time two more months had passed, I was like, if we don't get this, I'm going to kill myself. We have to get this. Um, But, you know, we did from the moment and we knew that they were going to continue to come back in. They come in multiple times, even after they've notified you that you're being considered. And I turned to the staff um, and I said, you know, everyone like cried and was excited and flipped out. And I said, we don't do anything different. We just keep doing what we're doing we don't change anything we're just going to be us and if they choose us they're right and if they don't they're wrong but i can't imagine there's anyone on the planet working harder than we are to make people
1: happy that's beautiful that's like playing i call it playing your best game you know? For sure. Oh, that's it. Yeah. It's a competitive business, right? But it's all driven by passion. It's all about innovation. It's about staying ahead of the competition, having lots of hooks and dazzling the public with the service and the ambiance and the food and all that kind of stuff and a million other details besides, but that's playing your best game.
0: It is. I mean, you know, you look at the margin of error in this industry and not to say that there aren't other industries with similar margin of errors, but you know, if you do a great job 999 times, And on the thousandth time, you mess it up and you don't take the time to fix it. You know, that person will never care that that you did it right 999 times.
1: That's so true. Nobody has a bad
0: experience at the restaurant. and goes, I'm sure they were having an off night. I'll definitely go back. It never happens. So you have to give it your best. It comes down to your why. It really does. Instead, Instead of establishing a list of protocols with the staff, Every day during pre-shift, we talk about like why we're there, like why I spent two million dollars of my best friend's money <laughs> building out this restaurant and why we dedicate 40, 50, 60 hours a week yeah. to executing at this level. Why the kitchen guys get in there at nine o'clock in the morning for a 4 p.m. service, you know, yeah. because If everybody involved in the process understands why we do it and why we do it comes from like a really significant, meaningful place, you know, then there doesn't need to be direct management. You know, if someone doesn't like a dish and it was prepared the right way, they shouldn't be obligated to pay for it, in my opinion, because like I don't want to pay for shit I'm not going to eat. I don't want to pay for food. I don't like, and it's not my fault. I don't like it. I just, I just don't like it. You know? Agree. Um And so on the rare occasions that that happens, you know, they're empowered to say, I'm sorry. You don't like it. Not, I'm sorry. The food is bad. Cause you know, I had this strategic advantage of working with a world-class chef and the food is always great and the food is always consistent. And so, you know, we walk through every day with the confidence of knowing that, that, it's almost, it's a near impossibility that the food wasn't executed to perfection. So if you don't like it, it's because you don't like it and that's fine.
1: Let me ask, is your executive chef really strong at costing as well as putting out amazing culinary delights?
0: Oh yeah. He's great. He really is. You know, we met the first time we met, we just talked about food and feeling for hours and you know, there. There's so much to be said for an artist that has has a firm business sense. And he has that, you know, his, his labor's in the right place. Uh, his food costs are in the right place. It's great.
1: That's fantastic. And that's a, that can be a challenge because I know you you've taken a stand for sustainable, you know, sourcing and oh, getting in a huge things from way. sustainable companies. And that is not always the most cost effective. You know, the economies of scale with some of the smaller producers or suppliers just isn't there. And you gotta strike that balance. So somehow you're making that work too.
0: It's a miracle. And he gets all the credit for it because I gotta tell you, the food costs a fortune. Like the 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 raw cost of the food. Costs an absolute fortune because it's a scratch kitchen and we're zero waste working towards carbon neutral. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how he does it, but he does a world-class job. It also helps that the top line is huge.
1: Absolutely. And it needs to be, but there's a marketing component to that as well, because the, you know, the accolades that you receive and the online reviews and the buzz of the customer that loves and can taste the quality because it is a foodie city. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't put a price on the word on the street that talks about going to that place called Prune Proper. Yeah. So, you
0: know, we, uh, when we started, so I, when I initially launched the restaurant, uh, I had a different executive chef and a different general manager. And i almost shut it down uh, about 10 months in. Uh, the executive chef and I didn't get along. We didn't have the same vision for the restaurant. Uh, the general manager was not operating it the way I would, he was operating it in the way a traditional restaurant operates, which is not what I want. I didn't open a restaurant so I could be like everyone else. I wanted I wanted it to be a fun place to work that was inspiring. And that the patrons that went were inspired by the feelings that they had there. And it just wasn't that. So uh, it, it, right at about the 11-month mark, I brought in Chef Sammy Mansour, and I let go of the general manager, and I took over as general manager myself. Uh, and we did all of the heavy lifting ourselves. How long? We did turned that it over in four days. We shut it down, oh. and four days later, we opened with yep. basically a new restaurant and a new menu.
1: How did you get the word out that there were changes? Did you just leave it to the public? Did you announce anything? Um, what's
0: you know? So it's 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 interesting you ask because I would say that I did a very poor job of getting the word out. I would say that we spent the next year because I got a ton of business right off the bat. It's a beautiful building. It's a beautiful restaurant. Uh, You know, American food in America is a compelling offering because there just aren't that many people doing it, right? Um, So we got a ton of traffic, and we ruined everybody's night, you know? uh the the food was misfired there was no consistency it was overcooked it was undercooked the bar program was mediocre at best uh the staff was largely disorganized uh so we spent a lot of time over that first year and into the second year apologizing and begging people to come back um i should have gotten a publicist that would have made a lot of sense uh, we should have we should have had a central focus on social media, we didn't. Uh, the area we're located in in downtown LA is densely po- it's a densely populated residential area. We did the best we could to to reach out to people, uh, but it was slow, you know. And the reputation was is that the food was spotty and it wasn't that good. And nobody knew that there was a, another executive chef in there, and that that largely we had pivoted from being let's say an elevated bar concept into fine dining or whatever fine dining looks like in 2019. Um, And, and it was a real struggle. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't really till the beginning of year three when I decided that either we were going to shut it down or we were going to get incredibly busy Um, because I didn't want to be an accountant. Right. And that's what that's what all unsuccessful restaurateurs become. You're your own accountant because everybody's calling you on the phone, hounding you for money. You know, this person stopped delivering and, you know, you're at 45 days on this net 30. You're at 60 days on this net 30. I just didn't want to do it. I was tired of being chased down for money. And it was it was right at the beginning of year three. that everything changed, and everything changed because I changed and my focuses changed and my strategies changed.
1: That sounds like a triage situation. You mentioned numerous major league problems that you had before the turnaround happened. Like where did you place your priorities and how, what did you focus on first and how did you tackle it? You know, just, you and the new guy like you had a lot of you had to work that out for you but so was
0: he was there. building this menu out right so yeah. we we launched with like an eight item menu and then he eventually grew it to uh a 30 item menu with another like 18 items on the barroom room menu over the course of that that year uh with very little overlap but a bunch of uh a bunch of crossover in terms of ingredients but, it, it, you know, he had built out this amazing menu. We brought in uh, Cassidy Wiggins. She's a world-class uh, beverage director who came up with this, like, sustainable bar program where you've got, like, these, like, really, like, strong drinks paired with, uh, paired with like, fruity fun drinks that have, like, frozen watermelon as, like, ice cubes. And so everything's great, but nobody's in there, right? So I didn't triage. I only focused on one thing. I focused on top line revenue. I said, what can I do to bring in people? Because the reality is if you're running a restaurant responsibly, which we were, food cost wasn't an issue, beverage cost wasn't an issue, uh, you know, my, my fixed costs were fine. It was labor. Labor's the devil. You know, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, when you have a, a tip job, I mean, and granted, I'm a bit older and I've been gone for 20 years, but I think we were making $2.15 an hour. In Los Angeles, you're paying, today we're paying fourteen twenty-five an hour.
1: To tip personnel.
0: To tip personnel.
1: Unbelievable.
0: So if, if that's the case, then, then yeah. you know, what's the devil? The empty seat is the devil, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. It's about monetizing the people that are on the floor. And so I only focused on top line sales. I still only focus on top line sales. And, you know, I, I came up with this mantra that I told myself every day. I was like, you're not making enough money because you're not making enough money. That's it. There, there's a certain number at top line as long as we continue to operate the restaurant responsibly. There's a top line number we can hit where everything makes sense.
1: You know that that totally strikes a chord with me and really hits a touchstone because my philosophy has always been okay. You as the owner, you're taking all the risks of business. You know, you're 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 doing the 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 mortgage, the rent, the payroll, the utilities, the cost of goods, all this stuff. You got a huge risk in a high fail business, and there's so many operators that I work with or I speak with that just don't seem to, you know, get that simple philosophy that why then wouldn't you expect that every person interacting with a guest, not only delivers amazing service, but also is trained to sell because it's a sales business. It's a sales position. They should be there to maximize your opportunities and maximize your top line revenue. And so many restaurateurs, that concept is lost on them. And they just, Bring in order takers on the floor and let whatever happened happens and leave lots of dollars on the table every day. And you just hit the nail on the head. It's like, wow, you're paying 14 bucks an hour to tip personnel. That's huge. Not to mention the rents in the city and all the other, you know, overhead expenses you've got. And somehow you've got to make the numbers work. Two
0: thousand no- dollars a month. So the only way to make it work is to bring in more money. Yeah. But two hours off that busser's schedule, yeah. I'm not going to become a profitable concept. It's not going to happen. And so, you know, all we focused on was revenue generation. All we focused on was broad scale awareness. All we focused on, well, I mean, and and to be honest, we focused on one medium, right? The internet. That was it. Um, And why? Because that's how people find restaurants. That's it. You know, sure, it's through word of mouth, but you'd be crazy to think that if someone raves about your restaurant, that that person isn't going to go to your website first, that they're not going to check out your menu before they show up. It is such a rare occasion when people walk into a restaurant blind in 2019. So what do your materials look like? You know, how's the copywriting on your page? You know, what do your photos look like? Are you transporting people to another world? If you can't give people a holy shit experience at a glance when they're looking at what you do for a living. Absolutely. um, You know, you're screwed. That's because that's not half the battle. That's the whole battle.
1: You got to bring the experience to the life of the customer before they walk in the door.
0: You do, right? It's not about convincing people to go out to a restaurant. It's about convincing people to go out to your restaurant.
1: No doubt about it. Let's go back in time. So Baton Rouge, Louisiana, you go to LA looking for a hot concept to bring back. What happened first?
0: It's, you know, it's just the strangest thing in the world. So I'm Xeroxing bartending resumes at Kinko's and, uh, and this guy walks in with one of those like gym boxes. It's like, you know, enter your name to win a year long free membership. Uh, and I was like, Hey bro, are you guys hiring? And he goes for what? And I was like, I don't know. And he goes, are you Southern? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, my whole family's from Mississippi. What do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. He goes, well, just come into the gym tomorrow and I'll get you a job. And he introduced me to the fitness director who hired me on as a personal trainer. They trained me to be a personal trainer. And it was through that, that I met this guy named Ronnie, who hit me up and he was like, you used to bartend, right? It's like a year later. And he was like, you used to bartend, right? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, I'm working the door at this nightclub in Hollywood. Uh, and they need a patio bartender, which I mean, if there, if there's a lower ranking position in front of house, I'd like to know what it is. Because you don't even, you're not a bus. You don't even have a busser. You're like on this island onto yourself. Um, and I was like, yeah, dude, I'll totally do it. He was like, I'll pay $100 a night. I was like, yes, I'm in. So I book it over to the nightclub, I set it all up, I run the service, I break it down. And they were like, "Hey, you did a pretty good job. Come back next Tuesday. Two months later, I'm the general manager of an 8,000 square foot nightclub in Hollywood. That nightclub turned out to be the most uh, popular, trendy nightclub in LA uh, for well over a year. Uh, I captained that, uh, captained a couple of other nightclubs. Got out of it entirely, was like, I'm never going to be in hospitality again, because the nightclub industry is just scandalous, and it'll just burn you out. Uh, So I got out of that, decided I was going to start a clothing line. I I don't really know why, other than it seemed like it would be easy, because I had access to all of these celebrities through the nightclub industry. Uh, that actually went incredibly well. I launched through Barney's New York and Kitsen, ended up with 400 doors in the U.S. Uh, was distributed through eight countries. Uh, really got an appreciation for the hospitality industry there because it's just it was just a grind. Whereas I've always enjoyed my time in the hospitality industry. Uh, at at uh, the lowest point in the market in 2008. I, uh, I licensed the clothing line and I bought a bar on Hollywood Boulevard called 504. And, uh, and that, you know, that, that is what precipitated all of it.
1: This is crazy. And I'm going to throw this out there just because it's relevant. So I lived in Los Angeles from 1989 to 1993. I was in the clothes clothing business and my partner and I started a line. We got into Bloomingdale's and Nordstrom's. We ran this thing for about two and a half years, got knocked off numerous times. It was uh-huh. brutal, you know, and we finally, you know, packed that up after a couple of years, moved back East, but yeah i know the scene you're talking about
0: oh my god i thought california
1: mark you know
0: i got into fashion and i went running back to hospitality
1: yeah so you started this place on the hollywood boulevard and how how well did that go right off the bat
0: you know it cranked it cranked from the day it opened from the day it opened it made money uh which i mean what a wonderful place to be
1: what was the draw Uh, what was the ambiance? What was the theme? Like, what made it rock? So,
0: five hundred four is the area code for New Orleans. So, if you can imagine, yep, you know, yep. a ton of wrought iron, spinning daiquiri machines, and you know, I I think that you know, when everybody's going right, you go left, and yeah. so, you know, I was able to stick my finger in the air, and I could see the way the winds were changing, and, you know, there was a recession. There were no bars on Hollywood Boulevard other than the Frolic Room at the time, and so I opened like a cheap. Divey bar, the bar I opened, the bar that I spent my youth in. You know,
1: was it in the sleazy side of Hollywood? Like you were on the Walk of Fame, but you know, there's some sketchy parts of Hollywood.
0: Yeah, I would say we. I would say when we when we opened almost ten years ago, we were on the abandoned side of Hollywood. You know, there was really there was no traffic, there was no tourist traffic, like drawing that far down at the time, which was fine with me because I lived in Hollywood for a long time, and I knew that Hollywood. Forgetting the glitz and the glamour was a densely populated residential area. And I know that that's my bread and butter. I know that like if I had a core competency, it would be building community. Cool. So I was like, that's what I'll do. I opened a, you know, it's a 900 square foot bar, uh, you know, got top line revenues up to $1.4 million a year Um, and we cranked, you know. And it was great, and it was always busy, and it was always the same people every day. Uh, when I first launched, and it was, it was so fun and so funny for as long as it lasted, we, uh, everyone we hired was from Louisiana. No way. Oh, did yeah. Did you find
1: these people? Did you put it on the paper looking for Louisiana? I did. That's
0: exactly. I was like, hey, are you from Louisiana? You want a job?
1: Hit me up. Cajun style. Oh, my God.
0: It was uh, it was it was an absolute blast because it, I, was, I was literally trying to recreate the environment that I grew up with. And like yep. I'm sure I, just like I'm doing a poor job explaining it now, I would have done a poor job explaining it then. So, you know, the cheat was you just hire a bunch of people that grew up with you. Right. They already know what it's like. And you say, yo, I want this to be a mixture of this place and this place. Right. Right. right? I want you to feel like this in here. And, like, they executed to perfection.
1: Sweet. What happened next?
0: <laughs> well, it was time for our sophomore effort. I mean, you know, I don't know how many people you talk to that go say, oh, you know, I did everything right and everything was perfect. But, you know, my professional life has been a comedy of errors. And it just so happened to work out incredibly well. Uh, while I owned the clothing line, I used to launch across the street at this place called Angelique. It's in this beautiful flat iron building in the heart of downtown L.A. And I always said, if that building ever became available, I would pick it up. So it came available. We were about four or five years in at 504. Uh, So we snatched it up as soon as I heard that it was available. It was an aggressive negotiation, but we got it. And this was going to be the second location of 504. Uh, We spent nine months building it out. Uh, We hired a publicist to open it. Uh, And, you know, I can remember, I still have this press clipping. It's me on the on the front page of the LA Times food section. And it says 504 is coming to downtown LA. Shortly after that article released, I called my business partner on the phone. And I said, I'm looking at the aesthetics of this two story restaurant. And it is not a 504. People aren't going to understand this. Whatever, whatever the idea was initially, it has evolved into something else. He goes, so you want to change the name? I said, no, I want to change the concept entirely. Like, I think we need to go more upscale. This looks more upscale. It feels more upscale. I think that, you know, this would be a better pairing with the market. And he was like, we open in a month. We're already getting press. Everybody knows. But, you know, I... I don't know what the opportunity cost is on making the right decision, but I know what the cost is on making the wrong decision. So after getting all of this press for opening a, uh, a, uh, uh, you know, second five Oh four in downtown LA, uh, I decided to pivot into Peru and proper and create this fine dining slash bar room concept that focused on modern Southern cuisine. Uh, and then we opened. I want to hear know. all
1: about that, but let me ask you a question. Let's go back to 504 before we dive into proven Proper, if you don't mind. So you were 10 minutes ago, you're working as a personal trainer in a fitness club. And all of a sudden you open a bar on Hollywood Boulevard. And yeah, it generated big numbers and alcohol is super profitable. But how'd you get your financing to start the thing?
0: Uh, you know, I, I believe that when you are in the right headspace, good things come your way. And maybe I can say that because of the way my life has worked out, but I've always kind of had this bump on a log mentality where like, you know, I, I just I try and keep myself as open as possible to things. Uh, the way I acquired the location was I just licensed the clothing line. Spent has been about six weeks in bed because I was depressed because I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, and a girlfriend of mine hit me up and she was like, Hey, I want you to come see this new spot that, she was dating the landlord and the landlord had broken up with her. And as a gift, he given her this, this leasehold at this great deal on Hollywood Boulevard. And she calls me in and it turned out she wanted financing. She wanted me to invest in her concept. And I said, what are you going to do? And she goes, burgers and beer. And I was like, they're like five places down the road doing burgers and beer. Sure. Um, so I'm not interested, but I love the space. It was You know, in Southern California, patios are king. And this whole bar is patio. So I was just floored by the opportunity. I call her a month later. I'm like, did you get financing? And she goes, no. And I said, well, then I'll take it off your hands. Whatever your investors put in, whatever you put in, whatever time you put in, I'll just clear it all out and I'll just absorb it from you. Because I don't like your concept. I won't invest in it. Uh, but I do have a concept that I think would do really well in here. So why don't I just take it from you? And she goes, okay, we agreed to a price. Uh, and I was going to start fielding, uh, uh, you know, I was going to go back to like the investors from the nightclub era and all of that to get financing. And then a buddy of mine who's done very well, uh, hit me up and he goes, Hey man, I heard you're thinking about opening a bar in Hollywood. I said, yeah. And he goes, why don't you come by my office and we'll, uh, we'll talk about it. I went by his office and I told him what the concept was. And he goes, yeah, it's great. We should, we should do it. And I was like, okay. I was like, how much do you want to invest? He goes, oh, I'll just do the whole thing.
1: And I was like, oh, okay.
0: (laughs) And that's, that was
1: that. Captured lightning in a bottle
0: yes sir well you know carlos santana says that there's nothing in the world more contagious than enthusiasm i'm a very enthusiastic person and i believe that uh that that that, that is the fuel that kind of moves this machine forward
1: for sure all right let's talk and proper
0: all right so modern southern cuisine so you know we we came in let's start a year two okay right because i don't I don't think anyone needs to hear about how terrible the first two years were. Um, but you know, I just, it was literally the first restaurant I had ever worked in, in my life. I come out of bars. I come out of nightlife. I come out of ultra lounges and nightclubs. And so, you know, when we pivoted to, to fine dining or, or, you know, an elevated concept, I mean, I didn't know what to do to promote it. I didn't know how to position us in the market. You know, fortunately, the executive chef we brought in knew a lot. Um, But again, like, I decided that if we were going to go out of business, what I was going to do was I was going to do everything that I wanted to do, everything in my power to make sure that it is exactly how I envisioned, you know? And that's what I did. I took out an Amex loan. For about a hundred thousand dollars, and I spent it. I bought a ton of tables and chairs. I changed like the color of things I didn't like. Uh, I bought all of the tools that I thought the staff needed to succeed. Um, I invested in training, and retraining. Um, we invested in new plateware and always having enough silverware, you know, in the basics. And I hired a publicist, and and that was that was kind of the beginning of of the rebirth. And then, you know, we got to work on our public face. Uh, You know, if I was to give anyone advice, I would say, you know, labor is the devil. You're not making enough money because you're not making enough money. And you need to focus on your brand image. And I'm not like a marketing guy, but I can tell you that the way I look for a restaurant is the way everyone looks for a restaurant. You go online, you look for something that tickles your fancy, and you move on from there. So you've got to look for the, the elements that are going to separate you from the pack. And that's exactly what we did. You know, uh, I'll give you just a few simple examples. And I think every restaurateur should do this. Uh, on Yelp, you have the opportunity to pay for a slideshow. It's like $20 a month. And granted, everyone thinks Yelp is the devil, but everyone still uses it. I still use it, Right. And so for twenty dollars a month, I can control the imagery that people see when they go to that page. Either it can be inspiring, or it could be something that an octogenarian took in low light on their twenty-year-old cell phone from a terrible angle, right? And my preference is is that it's my photos, that it's food, beverage, and experience. And, and again, like that is a tool that you use to control how people perceive your location. You know we spent a lot of time working and reworking our copy. You know modern Southern cuisine doesn't exist. We created the terminology because it evokes right Now you're thinking about these age old recipes that are made with scratch ingredients that are presented in a gorgeous way it's a It's about positioning, it's about really trying to figure out who your target audience is and then catering to them in a way that will really resonate.
1: It's funny. You're not a marketing guy, but I used to work in an ad agency on Wilshire Boulevard, and you speak just like all the other <laughs> dudes, man. I think you become a marketing guy. you <laughs> become a song and dance man,
0: right? Yeah. You know, I can remember I was on Beale Street in Memphis, and, uh, and there was this guy standing outside of this host stand, uh, and he goes, Hey guys, and he owned the restaurant because I asked, because I had to know He goes, Hey guys, you should come in and have lunch with me. I mean, ribs are a bit heavy for lunch. Right. And he was the best ribs you'll ever have in your life. Come in. And if you don't like them, I'll give you your money back. I mean, those has to be really good ribs. Right. So we went in and they were, and we paid and we left, but like that restaurant owner is a song and dance man. Just like I am, just like you are, like you know, if you're if you're gonna make money, it's because there are people in your restaurant. If there are people in your restaurant, it's because you've convinced them to go in. You know? you know, these things. It takes so long for a restaurant to tip. It takes years for a restaurant to tip. So it's it's about that constant hustle. It's about hopefully encouraging people to come in, but focusing exclusive. On exclusively on, like, new customer acquisition. That's the bread and butter,
1: Imagine especially, stuff. like,
0: if, if you're at our price point.
1: Yeah. That is awesome. So what about the competition in the area of Prue and Proper? What would you say within a couple hundred yards of your place you're competing with? What concepts, and are they well-known? Are they brands? Are they, you know... The best the,
0: the best restaurants in the city at this point, I would say are located in uh downtown Los Angeles. What part right? of the downtown real-
1: would you say? Like describe the neighborhood.
0: Uh, arts arts district, fashion district. Sure. Um
1: okay. I'm uh,
0: two, two of the biggest. Uh central bid is pretty uh pretty mm-hmm. popular as well. But you're looking at like David Chang just opened major domo. Um, you've got Bavel. You've got Bestia, which is literally one of the busiest restaurants in the country. It's an Italian restaurant. Uh, you've got uh, Redbird, owned by uh, Chef Neil Frazier. Um, they, there are so many. Rossablue, which, which just got an, a nod as well. Uh, Faith in Flower. Uh, Broken Spanish is, is another one. I mean, huge. It's bohemus.
1: That's fantastic. It's funny. I, I interviewed uh, Russell Blue a couple months ago. Yeah. Uh-huh. Fantastic. So I'm familiar with that area now. Uh-huh. That's fantastic. So fun. So tell us, um, you must have a training philosophy as well. Let's talk about staff training. How, what, do you, what do you focus on? What do you teach them? What, what's the end result in your restaurants? Do you believe in pre-shift meetings? Take me through all that.
0: You got it. So, uh, I run my restaurants based off my core values. That is, that is, that is exclusively the match. That is the only metric we use, uh, to evaluate the staff. I meet with every member of my staff across three locations quarterly. I used to do it monthly. Uh, and in those meetings, we sit down and we discuss my core values and their performance relative to those core values on a pass-fail basis. Um, and so that is that is how we manage. Again, for me, it's all about the why. Like, if, if people understand why you do what you do for a living, they're more likely to show up on time, right? They're more likely to show up in uniform. Uh, I also have a zero-tolerance policy uh, for – I don't know how to describe it, other than just non-compliance non-compliance or, or personal failures. Like if you can't show up on time, if you can't show up in uniform, if you can't handle baseline compliance, it's just not going to work out. Our retention rate is probably, not that I've run the numbers, probably 40% in the first two weeks and 99% thereafter.
1: How would you describe your management style? What is it like to work for you?
0: Oh, I, w- I mean, I would hope it's inspiring. Um, I get that. You know, I get the So it, it's things. You know, the, it, and if it, if it ended there, I would be happy with that. You know, I use my position as an opportunity to educate. It's never about how smart I am or how well we're doing. I use pre-shift as an opportunity to do a variety of things. One, let them know what we're working on to make things better. Two, field any questions. Three, we all go around in a circle and say one thing we're grateful for because uh, as as a person, as an operator, and as a business, we have a central focus on gratitude. Uh, And I also tell them about the mistakes I made that week, which I think is important. I make mistakes all the time. But you know, they have the good fortune of getting to learn using my money. Most people pay for an education. What I am attempting to do is pay them to get an education. So that when they go out there into the world, because and this is somewhat true when you're talking about younger employees, but it is absolutely true across the board, regardless of age in Los Angeles. Like people that work for me, it's a pass-through position. Right? Nobody's trying to work their way. The industry. Everybody is one rock solid audition away from telling me to go screw myself, you know? And so understanding that ever, literally everyone that works for me front of house has aspirations outside of this industry. Um, you know, we make a deal. We make a deal the day you're hired. And the deal is this. Uh, I'm going to work every day to help make your dreams come true. And every day you're going to work to help me my, uh, make my dreams come true. And it works. It really does. And I do help. I help in every way imaginable. You know, the great thing about being a restaurateur in Los Angeles, in a very popular restaurant, is there are people of influence that are in all the time. And they love me because I don't need shit from them. Right? I'm the only one not asking. I'm the only one offering. And so, you know, I've been able to build these solid relationships over the years. And if I can use those to help someone get the right representation or the, you know, the right audition or to get a foot in the door, then I do.
1: Sweet. What, what about recognition and rewards? I mean, how do you elevate your people? You mentioned your retention rate goes up after four months and it's really, really high. That's awesome. How do you keep them?
0: You know, I, I think that that has to do with the interpersonal relationship that's built, you know, people, People, I believe truly that people only think they're motivated by money. And, And the reason I believe that is because I've been in positions in my life and I've seen other people, people that I'm close to in positions in their life where they were making a shit ton of money and they were miserable, right? So you think you're motivated by money, but you're not. What you're motivated by is satisfaction at a job well done and fulfillment. And, you know, I think we have the market cornered on that, you know? I think that if you have an open door policy and that, you know, you're interacting with your people every day, I think that's the reason people don't leave is because when I ask you how you're doing, like, it's not in passing. It's a real check-in. Hey, how are you doing? You know, is there anything that you need? What can I do to make your job easier? What can I do to make your life easier? You know, and in return, they do the same for me.
1: Thank you. It's a two-way street. It and, is.
0: Absolutely. Hey, it's a little slow right now. Is there anything you need me to do?
1: Awesome. That's leading by example right there. For sure.
0: It's being a human, right? Uh, I've read so many management books. But what I have found is, is that you know, my key to success has been, one, in the realization that I am incredibly average. Um, what I like is what everybody likes. I don't have exceptional taste. I don't have exceptional preferences. I am every man. So if I market to myself or I treat people the way I would want to be treated, typically it works out really well. But, you know, I I think especially the the highest levels, it's got to come down to mindfulness. It's understanding that most of the frustrations that you're dealing with as a manager come from your inability to manage well.
1: There's so many restaurants out there like that, unfortunately. Thanks for that piece of advice. I think it's well, well heard, and I'm totally inspired by just that one nugget alone. Right on. What about mistakes? Um, failures. My restaurant I mean.
0: was undercapitalized. That was the biggest mistake I ever made.
1: And that is one of the biggest causes of failure in the restaurant business. Man, I see it all
0: the time. You know, I, I work with uh, two dozen restaurants in the Los Angeles area, and every single one is undercapitalized. And the reason these restaurants are undercapitalized is because they have a poor strategy, right? Everybody's focused on Taco Tuesdays and Wine Wednesdays, and you know, and and I joke with my people all the time, and I was like, "Do you want to know how you can make an extra five thousand dollars on a Tuesday night?" And everyone's like, "How?" And I'm like, "Give away free sexual favors." It'll pack the house. They'll love it. They'll pay full price for the food. But outside of that, the only way to get packed on a Tuesday night is by making every other night of the week so busy it is their only option. It's very difficult to make an extra $5,000 on a Tuesday. It is very easy to make an extra $5,000 on a Friday or Saturday. Your restaurant is undercapitalized on volume nights. Right? How many covers are you doing on a Friday? Are you doing a hundred? Could you do 150? Could you do 200? Could you do 250? Could you have people on a 40 minute wait from the minute you open? Could you make that work and, and, and those are th- th- that's the big idea, right? that if you want to make an extra $5,000 a week on Tuesdays, more power to you. If you figure it out, call me. Uh, I'll make sure that it's somewhere on this podcast. My email address is there, but I think it's a lot easier to bring in an extra $15,000 on Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays, $5,000 at a time. And there's a way to do it. How many people listening now are getting three turns on a Friday and Saturday night?
1: Hopefully everybody.
0: (laughs) I mean, God willing, but it's, harder than it looks
1: well it is hard but i mean it's all about well all those details i call this the business of a thousand details you know
0: absolutely (laughs) you know and and, you know when i talk to people and they say you know how are you going to get this place busier i tell everyone it's by doing everything you do everything at once you do a thousand things and those the the aggregate of those thousand things Mm -hmm. will be that you get busier Everything you do will, will create an incremental improvement. Whether it's a Yelp slideshow, or it's you know, I, I'll give you another great example on Open Table and on Yelp. Uh, I was classified as Cajun Creole um, because you know that was kind of that was kind of the baseline cuisine that we focused on. And granted, it expanded outside of that, but that's where we started. And then you know, once I realized that that captive audience had you know we had hit that. We had saturated that market, which was probably 30 people. Then maybe we needed to expand outside of that. So then I changed my classification from Cajun Creole to Southern, right? Now I'm at like 300 people. Very exciting. Um, And now what does it say? It says New American. It's not a lie. That's exactly what we are. And that's what people are looking for. You know, I'm in a difficult place because, you know, I – how many people wake up in the morning and say, Oh, you know, I want Cajun and Creole for dinner. They don't, they want Indian, they want Chinese, they want Italian, you know? So you've got to be broad enough that people that may not know they're interested in trying your food, have the opportunity to, to be exposed to your brand, you know? And again, I'll go back to it cause I think it matters. You know, what does the quality of your photography look like online? You know, what does that messaging look like? Are you inspiring people? I've got this, uh, th- this restaurant that I-, I consulted on and I'll just bring it up because I think it highlights that even when you know everything, sometimes you miss really big things. Uh, Michelin rated chef. It's like a two-star Michelin rated chef. It's got this amazing wine bar in LA and, uh, and the- his bio on open table for his restaurant it's his personal bio. And I was like, who's going to eat that? Like, you know, like on what planet, like would that inspire someone to come in? Yes. You're a good chef. What are you cooking? What is it? Like, what is the food? Like, what is the beverage program? Like, what does it feel like to dine there? You know? Yes. You are an incredibly talented chef, but like, why in the world would like, the description for the restaurant be the description for your life you know
1: yeah you gotta and bring the whole concept to life for the customer you do like we but talked it's about earlier You know, you you got to be able to step right into that website and imagine yourself in that restaurant, you know, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the taste, the flavor profiles, the, you know, the compliments of the cocktails and the wine. You got to get the whole feeling from the website. And that is so powerful. If you can accomplish that, and again, professional photography and video and all those things are so important, especially with the food, you know?
0: Right. And then what's the next step? The next step is being able to capture that business. It's about optimizing your online reservation platform. It's about making it so that, you know, strategically, you open the book so the people can book, for the most part, whenever they want, however you want. That's that's the caveat there, right? Uh, You know, a little trick that we use is I don't allow anyone to book in my restaurant between 7 and 8 p.m. It's blacked out. It pushes everyone and you know, everyone goes, this is how you get shoulder business. Well, I'll tell you how to get shoulder business. You make it the only option. And if your restaurant's good enough and there's enough demand, people will just go because everyone on the planet wants to eat dinner at seven thirty. And Absolutely. while I can appreciate that, it's going to obliterate
1: your service. Okay. Let's, let's, touch on that concept a little deeper. So reservation policy, people in a city like Los Angeles expect to make reservations, but what would happen if you didn't allow reservations and it was first come first serve? And if you're doing your job, right. And if the buzz is there, you're creating sort of a demand that they can't have, that they're expecting to get. What do you think about that? What would happen if you took away the reservation policy?
0: I think that only works. So I think that only works based on a certain square footage. Okay. You know, I've got a 6,000-square-foot, two-story restaurant. Um, I'm looking for guarantees. And that's it. So, you know, forgetting what works for the patrons, what works for me is knowing roughly how many people are going to come in. That, That works for me. I like the guarantee of that business.
1: How often are people 10, 15 minutes late for that reservation? You're holding tables that aren't productive.
0: So we don't do that. What we do is we strategically overbook the restaurant and pray that people are 15 minutes late.
1: Okay. Beautiful.
0: That's it. You know, here's the deal. And I, I had, again, and I said this earlier and it's absolutely the case. We're serving world-class food. I can guarantee you that anyone that comes to my restaurant is going to have one of the best meals of their life. It's not bragging because I don't cook. I haven't boiled an egg in that kitchen, but And knowing how good the food is, it enables me to play fast and loose with the reservations. So let's say you have a reservation at eight and you show up at eight. And I let you know, I am so sorry, Uh, you know, but we are running about 30 minutes behind. Let me get you seated at the bar. I'll get you guys two glasses of sparkling wine. Are you hungry? Oh, you are? Here, I'll have an appetizer delivered to the bar. Make yourself at home. Right The two glasses plus the app probably cost me three dollars. My per customer average is $65 a person, and I've retained them. The goal is always the same. The goal is to get everyone in the restaurant. Once you're in, you're not leaving. No matter how mad you get, I can fix it, right? And so I just have to get you in. And once I get you in, I can keep you entertained. I can keep you fed and watered till it's time for you to seat. So for me, you know, I use it as a tool. We have ghost tables. And, uh, you know, if, if you try and make a reservation at, uh, at 5 p.m. or 5.30 p.m., my books are wide open. I can take 999 people every 15 minutes if demand warrants it. Um, and it's because, like, those are that's what I want to fill. And then, you know, again, the strategy, blacking out between 7 and 8, That gives me an hour to turn the entire room to get my second turn. And then if my team is doing their job, which they typically do, I'll get all of those people out in about 45 minutes to an hour and a half. And then I'm going to get that third turn right around nine or nine thirty. And those are my walk ins.
1: All right. Do you have any issues with what we call camping? (laughs) You get people that just don't leave the table.
0: Yes. So that would, that you know, that falls into one, one of my other, uh, one of my other philosophies, which is radical honesty. Um, I am the guy that walks up to the table and says, Hey guys, I know you're done with the meal and you guys can stay here for as long as you want. But if you move to the bar, I'll buy you a round of drinks. I need to move this table. Do you see those people sitting over there or standing over there? They're waiting waiting for the table so if you could hook me up with this i'll totally help you out and they do because people are people and people want to help but you know i've never understood this you know one of my most memorable restaurant experiences was my wife and i were at this restaurant and the food was dragging and like i watched the waitress like walk all the way around the restaurant to avoid eye contact with us instead of walking up and being like hey The food's dragging. It's probably going to be another 30 minutes. I'm sure you're starving. I'm going to bring out a dish to tide you over. We can bring out the burrata because there's zero preparation. We'll bring out the shishito peppers, you know, just because I don't want you to be hungry. And I know you've been waiting for 20 minutes and the jigs up. If you assume people aren't stupid, if you assume that people want to be made aware and give people the opportunity, you know, I don't tell you it's going to be 20 minutes until you're going to be seated. If it's going to be 40. I tell you it's going to be 40. If I need you to get up, I'll bribe you to get up because that's a transactional situation, right? Totally. You want to sit longer. I want you to get up and I'm willing to throw money at that situation to make that happen.
1: Well, hopefully they stay after that. You buy them that round of drinks. They have another one.
0: (laughs) It will. Absolutely. And you know what? If they don't, they still got up. I still got what I wanted out of it.
1: Exactly. You're an impresario.
0: <laughs> I am just treading water here, my friend. Just treading water.
1: Let's uh, let's ask, what's your best advice to independent operators out there no matter where they're running their restaurants?
0: Focus on the top line. Work with strategic partners. You know, we work with companies like uh, Dinova and Rewards Network to like bring in traffic. I would also say That if your if your strategy is to make all of your money one way, which would be by like having people come in and dining at your restaurant, it's going to be a long, hard life. Um, There are multiple ways to bring in revenue. And I think that the people that are making the most money are doing everything. They're focused on catering and bringing in filming work. They're selling gift cards on their website and focusing on third-party delivery. They have retail packages available of their hot sauces and butters. And and they have a central focus on events, which are basically free money.
1: Totally That's great. it. And,
0: and, you know, if, if you wanted to, I could dig into events because – Oh my God, there's so much. That is that is where everybody is losing the most money. We bring in, the first year I started focusing on events, we brought in $100,000. And three years later, we're going to do almost a million dollars in events this year.
1: Private parties. Private parties. Private rooms. Large yeah.
0: parties. But it's, you know, you know what the trick was? And you can go to our website, provenproper.com. You can check out our reserve to events tab. And that's how you book. You know what we do? We leave nothing up to the imagination. You can take a virtual tour. You look at my packages. They have photos of what the rooms look like. We have different carts and options. You know, again, it's about being a human. You've got to realize when somebody's booking an adventure place, that it is a high stress situation. Either it is a professional thing where they're hoping they don't get embarrassed or fired, or it is a familial thing, which is twice as stressful because your mother-in-law is involved. You know, and so if you can set it up so that they can envision through the materials you've given them a world class experience, you're good to go. That's it.
1: Are you trying to serve these private parties during fringe times or otherwise it's going to slow down your regular dining service? Take me there. Really depends
0: on your budget. It really does. Um, You know, would I close service for a lucrative event? Of course I would. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it really depends on what your budget is. Um, You know, I still handle the events for Pro and Proper because it's my restaurant and I feel like I have the carte blanche to make whatever work depending on, you know, our current reservation load and, you know, other, you know, other monies that we need to bring in. But, uh, I think that, yeah, I think that's very situational. Obviously, I would love to bring them all in. On Monday afternoon.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, but, you know, as an example, if you would like to buy out Saturday night at Peru and proper, I'll shut it down for $30,000, you know, and you can, the world is your oyster. You can have whatever you want, you know, but we work with people to ebb anxiety. I don't know if that's a big motivator in your life, but it's certainly a big motivator in mine. And so, you know, we tell everyone, you know, we're Southern, we're laid back, we're easy. Uh, my mama says that the six most beautiful words that could ever come out of a Southern man's mouth are, don't worry, baby, I'll handle it. And uh, and so, you know, that's the philosophy we take, whether it is with, you know, a two-top that comes in on a Thursday night, whether it's a 250-person party. We like to handle it all. And we do that through materials to start.
1: Sweet. So, anything we missed, Joshua? Anything else you want to share with the audience? It's been an amazing conversation.
0: This has been an absolute blast. Um, yeah, there, the last thing I would say is this answer your phones. Uh, we saw a 10% increase in top line sales by answering our phones, right? Everyone's answering their phones at four o'clock. Who's answering their phones at nine o'clock in the morning? Uh, I'll tell you it's calling. It's secretaries looking to book out like big dollar luncheons with no budgets for their boss. And they're calling your restaurant because they need resolution now. And if you don't answer, they don't leave a message. They just call the next restaurant because they're not trying to book at your restaurant. They're trying to book at a restaurant and they called you first. I was amazed at how much money was left on the table by not answering the phones. I was, I was shocked.
1: That's an eye opener.
0: It is so get all the calls forwarded to your cell phone at your restaurant, you can make it work and uh and field it, and you will you're guaranteed to make more money uh to prove the point, we started a uh a virtual reservationist, the first of its kind, where I hired the best reservationist in los angeles and uh and through a, a technology software we built out. We're we're able to answer the phones from one reservation is able to answer the phone for multiple restaurants. We offer it for two weeks for free, and we guarantee, we guarantee a five to ten percent increase in top line sales. Do you want to know how? We answer the phone. It's that it's that simple. And you don't have to use us. You can just answer your own phones. But you will be amazed at the money that you're leaving on the table.
1: Awesome. You heard it, folks. Those are the words from Joshua koppel Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. That was such a blast.
0: It was a blast. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciated it.
1: That was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, folks, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you very much for tuning in, guys. I really appreciate it. As you can tell, I really enjoy talking shop with operators, those that have had challenges and pain points in their business, as well as those who have found great successes and everything in between. As you can see from this action-packed episode, Josh Capel has seen it all. You know, this is definitely one of the most challenging businesses out there, and I've been in a lot of businesses, but, you know, I don't need to tell anyone how difficult it is to run restaurants or the high failure rate. If you could benefit from one-on-one coaching, I love working personally with restaurant operators, owners, and general managers. I specialize in three, what I call the fundamentals of the business, the critical finances, the inventory, the prime costs, food, beverage, and labor costs, of course, net profit, daily break even, all those critical financial tools that so many restaurant operators are missing. And I make it simple. I teach you everything you need to know. I also specialize in staff training because I'm a huge believer that training your staff is the most important competitive advantage in your business, okay? A lot of restaurants train on service or the hospitality piece, but they're missing the salesmanship piece, and they both go together because sales are the lifeblood of your business. My proven programs have doubled check averages in restaurants, so check that out. What about marketing? You know, lots of restaurants spend tens of thousands of dollars a year on traditional advertising, you know, radio, print, and TV. And I've found that those things just can't deliver a guaranteed return on investment. You'll never know if your money spent is actually bringing in the customers. But instead, I focus on proven marketing techniques that are guaranteed to drive new and repeat business for very little money, as well as efficiencies across your operation. I have a limited number of personal coaching slots available each year, so I'm taking, a, uh, I'm taking reservations now. So if this sounds like something that could help your business move forward, please reach out to me. Roger is R-O-G-E-R at restaurantrockstars.com. I hope to hear from you. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review on iTunes. We have over 180 episodes now, all archived on our website at restaurantrockstars.com, whether it's finance or service or marketing or technology. You'll find it all there. But please recommend us and let your friends who also operate or run restaurants know. But they can find us on iTunes, of course. We appreciate reviews. We appreciate your listening. I'll see you in the next episode.